You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you have given us your word, that you have given us your son, the Lord Jesus, that he has sent his people out, that you you have um, given us 
your people, his spirit, your word, all of these things. And we delight to be a people of your word now gathered under your word. And we help us that you would pray us to see our king for all that he is in your word as revealed to us by the spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you after the service. We have been going through the gospel according to Luke. We took the summer off to work through the book of Joshua, but this Sunday now marks 27 weeks now in this gospel. We're through 10 chapters. We're just starting chapter 10, uh, half a year uh, through this incredible retelling of Jesus's life, his teaching, his ministry, his death and resurrection. It truly is the good news of the saving and reconciling work of Jesus our King. Last week, if you were with us last Sunday, we saw a major transition happen in chapter 9 at verse 51 that we read, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That was both a geographic change as Jesus and his disciples began to, like, they turned their faces south. They began to walk and move towards Jerusalem. But though they are moving south, they are also now, once they are moving south, they are now climbing an elevation toward Jerusalem, toward Mount Zion, with the cross at the top of the hill, perhaps looming darkly on the horizon. And yet Jesus is resolved to keep moving toward that silhouetted cross on the hill, on the horizon, the place of his suffering and death, because it will be the place of his coronation as king. The place of his death becomes the place of his people's life. And everything here in this Gospel of Luke, really in the whole Bible, but here certainly in the life of Jesus is upside down. It is unexpected. And he is not there, uh, but he is not there yet at the cross yet. And we are not there yet in our walk through Luke's gospel. Throughout Luke, we have seen Jesus wielding and utilizing his divine power to create to recreate the world as it was intended to be experienced by humanity. Uh, Those who would live in the uninterrupted presence of God, uninterrupted by sickness and suffering and like a a bit of like a pocket of light in the darkness. Jesus has been moving all over Galilee, this region in the north, the backwoods and forgettable region of Galilee in the north, the region of his youth. And he has been pushing back against the darkness against the darkness of a world under the curse of sin, against the darkness of a world under the influence of the oppression of spiritual powers opposed to God, the darkness of a world who itself is opposed to God. And Jesus, this pocket of light moving about in the darkness, has been healing, he has been calming, he has been teaching, he has been reorienting his hearers' eyes, their ears, their minds, their hearts, and their imagination to the glory and the goodness of God. Back at the beginning of chapter 9, and a, a move that was kind of like taking the training wheels off of his like five-year-old disciples' bikes, uh, he sent out the 12 apostles with the same light-pushing delegated authority to heal and to preach and to teach. And here in chapter 10, he's going to widen the the scope. Back in chapter 9, he just sent the 12, the apostles. But now here, a much larger group, he is going to essentially do the same thing with many of the same instructions. His same delegated and authority, a chapter later in chapter 10, now to a group of 72 disciples to heal, to preach, to teach with the power of Jesus, even if Jesus isn't standing right there with them. 
even if he's not even in those towns or villages where they are preaching. In other words, he is preparing his people for life when he is no longer physically present with them, a time which is coming very soon. So we're going to ask three questions of the power of Jesus from Luke 10, verses 1 through 24 tonight. Jesus' power, what is it, what's going on here? And so we're going to ask three questions. How is power proclaimed? How is power secured? And how is power revealed? So first of all, how is the power of Jesus proclaimed to a world of darkness that does not recognize his power? Verse 1, we read first right off the bat, after this. Well, after what? Well, what we thought about last week, after chapter 9, when Jesus both confronts James and John for wanting to... For, for them wanting to like immediately call down fire on those in Samaria who had rejected Jesus. And then after Jesus' very tough and urgent calls to discipleship amongst a world of distraction. And so after this, the Lord appointed 72 others to go out ahead of him. So the size of this number shows that Jesus had now, by now, gathered a gathering, a, a following that is much larger than just his twelve. We've talked about this before, that it is a, a group bigger than his apostles, what the gospel writers often refer to as the 12. These are just Jesus' disciples, those who are learning from him, those who are walking along the way with him. And there are a lot of them in this kind of caravan that was moving about with Jesus. And so here he sends out 72 of them ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. He is sending them out as like, little two-by-two John the Baptists to go out ahead of him to prepare the way for the Lord. There are some practical reasons, perhaps, for sending them out two-by-two. There is friendship. There is security. There is sharing the burden with a, a partner or a friend. Maybe there is even added courage that we often do things when there are others who are with us that we wouldn't perhaps do by ourselves. There's just ongoing encouragement with others. But maybe there are even scriptural reasons like Deuteronomy 19, which demands not just for one witness in a legal testimony, but two. These disciples are not to just walk into town and give their opinion about Jesus. They are to walk into town and with another witness to share and to validate what they themselves have seen. They are to proclaim the facts. They are to proclaim who Jesus is and what they have seen him to be. But why is he sending them? Well, because there are people in these towns, in these places, who, like them, will hear and will see the person and the ministry of Jesus and will join them. Just like when Jesus called the, the twelve to join and follow him, they are to do the same with others. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, I've never farmed Several of you certainly have. You grew up or worked on farms, but while so much of the life of farming is just sitting around and waiting, right? There is literally nothing that you can do to make the crops grow faster. Though when it becomes time, when it becomes harvest time, it becomes really time. After so much waiting, there is often more work to be done than there are workers. This is why so many farms hire seasonal workers. These crops must be harvested now or they will spoil. And Jesus is saying, right now, it is go time. There is work to be done. There are ripe and harvestable crops out there. There are people who must hear the good news of my kingdom. And so I'm sending you now. But he doesn't send them with clever strategies. He doesn't send them with 
persuasive marketing campaigns, but he sends them along with the power of God. Second half of verse two, he says, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest who send out laborers into his harvest. They are to pray. They are to ask God, understanding and expecting that he will respond, that he will do his work. And respond with what? What are they supposed to pray to and ask God to do? That he will provide more laborers. And how will there be more laborers? Well, when more people hear the call of the kingdom and respond and join them, the disciples are sent to preach and to proclaim that others might turn around and then join them in the same work. What an enduring and urgent call to not only take the mantle of these 72 for us to prepare the way for the Lord, sharing of his goodness and his kindness and his grace, but to actually and even proclaim what they proclaim in verse 9, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. In every town and place where we find ourselves, expecting that the power of God by his spirit moves with his people. That in the everyday and mundane uh, encounters of our life, if the spirit is with his people, then the spirit can do unbelievable things that we were not expecting. Places like our lunch hours at work, our kids' sporting events, at the park, and small talk conversations with our neighbors. To expect the power of God to be present in our conversations, to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near. But also in praying that God would raise up more to be sent. I have a friend who has a daily alarm set on his phone. And his alarm goes off at 10.02 a.m. every day. That's a weird time to set an alarm, but it's supposed to remind him of Luke chapter 10, verse 2. 10.02. That he would every day stop and pray for more workers. For more people to hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, and then be sent by the gospel. Just like the, the B's and the M's over there. The C's, the V's. Miss V. All of these people on all of these canvases who have heard the, 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 the call of the kingdom felt the urgency of this call to preach and proclaim all of the things that we've thought about uh, at the beginning of this service from Psalm 67, that all of the nations will praise God, that Jesus will reign from shore to shore. These things are true, and how incredible that God calls his people to be part of his mission. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray. Just as Jesus' call to his would-be disciples last week was urgent, the importance of the moment and the greatness of the call requires a great and important response. Jesus' call to his disciples to share and invite others into that discipleship is equally urgent. Urgent because the world that we live in is hostile to God, is blind in its self-worship, is perishing in its unbelief, and because Jesus desires for the dead to live. Or as Kyle read earlier from John 3, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus' primary purpose in coming to this people, to coming to the world, is to bring people into repentance and faith and bring him into the joy and the light of his kingdom. But the world, being hostile to God, can equally be hostile to his people. So Jesus warns in verse 3 that he is sending his disciples, the 72, out as lambs in the midst of wolves. This isn't new. He has been preparing his disciples for opposition and rejection. We've seen it so many times in Luke's gospel. But what does it look like 
for his disciples to go out as lambs amongst wolves, or as Matthew includes in his account of the same event, for Jesus' disciples to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. Well, by the very specific instructions that Jesus gives here. Now, Jesus gave very similar and in some places identical instructions to the 12 at the beginning of chapter 9. If you flip back over in your Bible, you'll see very similar instructions at the beginning of chapter 9 with the 12 that you see here in the beginning of chapter 10 with the 72. So what some of what I'm about to say might sound familiar from, like, I think March of earlier this year when we were in chapter 9, but I do want to note the differences as well. The 72 are to travel lightly. They are to depend upon the generosity of others. They are not to be beggars. And the money bag Jesus describes is usually a kind of money bag that traveling teachers would carry along with them with the ex- expectation of charging money for every time they were, they were teaching. An expectation of making some good money with their new philosophy of Jesus before they then moved on to another town. Jesus says, don't do that. This mission that he's sending them on is to not be for their own benefit, but for the benefit of the town. They are to not pack extra sandals. They are to not greet anyone on the road. This isn't to say that they are meant to be like impolite jerks whenever they see anyone. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying, I need you to keep moving in an undistracted way. There is a town or a village coming up over over the hill Don't stop and like talk about the weather with somebody who is distracting you. Get there. Preach the kingdom. And when you get there, verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, very similarly to the 12 in chapter 9, Jesus is saying, wherever someone welcomes you where you proclaim the kingdom, stay there. Stay there. When someone welcomes you, stay there. Theirs is to be a ministry of like infiltration. They're not to be uh, gospel guerrilla strikers moving in and out and about very quickly, but of but they are to stay in the power of Jesus that they might be received and then the ministry of Jesus might grow. Jesus will actually continue to both provide for his people through others and he will provide and preach to others through his people. Briefly, when we, th- when we briefly thought about this, when Jesus healed the centurion's servant without even being present, Jesus is preparing his disciples. This is not just an evangelism strategy. He is preparing his disciples and showing them that he can heal and he can work and he can move through them and for them when he's not present. And so a natural question for us is to ask of ourselves with these texts, we asked similar questions in chapter 9 and to ask of chapter 10 is, does this, does chapter 10 or how much of chapter 10 apply to us today? Should we, all, should we just like walk out of here, sell all that we have, have one pair of sandals and no others, uh, maybe have no pairs of shoes, have no money bags, we should sell, sell everything, give everything away and just walk out of here and move from town to town. What is descriptive here and what is prescriptive? Should we expect, as many modern evangelism and mission strategies today emphasize, to find a so-called 
son of peace or man of peace or person of peace, maybe someone who is initially receptive to the things of God, initially receptive to the gospel so that they can then invite us into their wider social or familial networks and just stay there slow work of growth here, and don't go to preach other places. Stay here, let it grow, and if you get rejected there, move on as quickly as possible. Should we expect these things? Should we practice these things within our own life? Well, for one thing, at the end of Luke, Jesus says this in Luke 22, verses 35 and 36. Jesus tells the disciples, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. Back here in chapter 9 and chapter 10, Jesus is teaching them to trust in his provision for them through the generosity of others. To go lightly, to be generous to others, to receive generosity from others. But here, or in later on in chapter 22, they are to not prepare lightly. They are to prepare, prepare well. They are to plan. They are to work. They are to take provisions along with them. Something has changed from Luke 9 and 10 to Luke 22. I think what we're learning here is that the itinerant, the mobile ministry of Jesus in the early chapters of the gospel, that of moving around, of preaching and healing, will ultimately be transformed into a longer-term ministry of planting of establishing the structure and the order of the church. Because here in chapter 10, in Galilee up in the north and then moving south into Samaria where Jesus likely is here, Jesus is not going to pass through these regions again preaching and teaching in his earthly ministry. The time of the present nature of the king in these villages is now and never again. So the disciples are meant to go out into these villages and say, the king is present with us here. Do you want to know him? Do you want to follow him? There are signs of his power present right now. It is time to enter into his kingdom and follow him. He physically will not be here again. It is urgent. And if not, if the people in these towns and villages reject this call to the kingdom, then the disciples, the 72, are to move along to find others who will. So knowing that Jesus' instructions change at the end of Luke and understand the, the like tension mounting end of the age is like the very pages of, the, of this end of the epic, the end and the transition of the new covenant are beginning to turn over their very heads. You can almost feel the newness of history and redemption turning over them. There is something unique about Jesus' instructions here. Paul seemingly doesn't utilize the, the person of peace strategy in Acts, but he often goes straight into the synagogues and he begins preaching, which doesn't then uh, get him into deeper social and family networks, but often immediately excludes them or excludes him from them. And yet, he does move about. He does once or twice even shake the dust off of his sandals as he leaves a town for their rejection of the gospel. But he expects to stay. He often stays for years in a town. And then what does he not expect of the people who he's leaving behind for them to come with him? They're to stay. They are to live. They are to 
preach the gospel where they are. They are to work the jobs that they have well and uh, with an ethic that points people to Christ. They are to stay and that the gospel might slowly build and move. Not like perhaps pouring gasoline onto a concrete foundation and throwing a match on it, that it might go quickly and fast, but then gone the next day. But they are to build, grow, plant, wait with the harvest that, that, that they might be part of the harvest as, as, as they deepen those, who are, th- those whom they are ministering to uh, in their knowledge of Jesus, in their, doc- in their knowledge of the doctrine of God. But in this moment, in this time, in Luke 10, Jesus is sending the 72 out to do some soil work, to start tilling the soil, the tilling to prepare the ground for a harvest, which perhaps actually won't come until the very following years. He is preparing and shaping his church to grow and to expand long past his ascension. And yet the disciples are sent with power. Not not with power to like coerce. They're not sent to make demands of the people to enforce obedience, but they are sent to heal. They are sent to proclaim. They are sent to invite. And when these towns or villages reject the preparation of the kingdom, they are then to move along in judgment. They are to shake the dust off of their feet. But theirs is a ministry of proclamation, proclaiming that even though the people of the town have rejected the king and his kingdom, in verse 11, even when those reject the king, nevertheless know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Whether these people, whether you acknowledge Jesus as king or not, he is still your king. The kingdom of God has come near, and to reject him is to reject God. To reject him is to choose death. The kingdom comes regardless of response. Jesus tells the disciples that there will come a day when the destruction of Sodom will appear light, that the infamously wicked cities of Tyre and Sidon, if they had just seen what some of these Galilean and Samarian towns had seen and witnessed from Jesus, those infamously wicked cities, those wicked towns with no knowledge of the nature and character of God, they would have repented and followed Christ. So what have you seen? Jesus is telling his disciples to declare, you have seen the marvelous works of God. Do not harden your hearts, but follow Repent. And you, Capernaum, basically the the home base of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is basically asking, Capernaum, who has finally and proudly rejected Jesus, will your pride, will your worldly wisdom lift you high in the heavens, in the skies, for all the world to praise you? No, your rejection of Jesus will bring you down low to the place of death, the fate and judgment for all who reject him. And the fate of all those who reject him is the same today as it was then. Will you make much of Jesus or make much of yourself? Will you turn from the worship of yourself and turn to the worship of Jesus? He is worthy of worship and we are not. But wrapping up this entire section, verse 16, Jesus tells the 72 that the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. To reject the invitation, the proclamation of the disciples is to reject Jesus, and to reject Jesus is to reject God. And so how is power proclaimed? Through the sent 
and delegated words of Jesus' people. They speak on his behalf. They work and love on his behalf. They live on his behalf and with and by his power to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And this is a role that we must take seriously. Not kicking up our feet and expecting Jesus to just do everything for us, but to actively participate in his proclamation, in his character, in his ethic, and to invite others that their sins might be forgiven. Even if Luke 9 and 10 is no longer a prescriptive model, and now perhaps the long-term localized growth in local churches is, this is still a role for us as well. And so if Jesus' power is proclaimed by his people, now how is it secured in his people? How is his power secured? So all of this has happened. The 72 have gone out. We don't know how long they've been gone or we don't necessarily get a, like a comprehensive progress report on like the, the, the sons of peace that they have found, how many towns or villages that they've shaken their sandals at or something like that. But in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. To which Jesus replies with a very strange response, doesn't he? He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Or more literally, he says, I was watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, it's not altogether clear whether Jesus is referring to like the initial fall of Satan from the heavens, however long ago that was, or if he's saying that while the 72 were out there doing what they were doing, he's saying, yeah, while you all were out there healing and proclaiming, preaching, casting out demons, while you were all doing that, I was watching Satan fall like lightning from the heavens. Either way, one way or the other, Jesus is watching the authority of the evil one fail. The authority of the evil one begin to fall and crumble. Evil spirits have no power before Jesus. It is just absolutely not the case that there is like some dualistic struggle between good and evil in the universe. And the battle just hangs in the balance. And all we can do is hope because the, the evil out there feels so dark, feels so oppressive, feels so uh, strong that I hope God wins out in the day. No, the battle is won. Jesus is the victor. And any power that the evil still holds onto and wields is a power on a leash. In God's wisdom, he allows and permits evil still today, but the existence of evil and darkness is not because he can't do anything about it, which is exactly his point in verse 19. In verse 19, he says, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now, this is not to say that nothing bad will ever happen. After all, Jesus will tell many of these same people that they will lose their lives on account of following Jesus, but that Nothing bad will happen to his people that he does not know about or that he does not allow. And even more than that, nothing so bad will ever happen to his people that something can snatch them from his hand, which is Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. The evil out there, the like symbols and emblems of the fall of the curse, serpents and scorpions, they can do nothing to you. The evil out there might afflict you, but not crush you. 
And yet these disciples here have been given real power and authority to act on behalf of Jesus. They act, they proclaim, they heal, and they rebuke the forces of spiritual evil with power. And yet Jesus knows the human heart. If you had just received this kind of authorized, delegated power to physically heal, to rebuke demons, to walk out into towns and villages like these 72 did, even if it was made clear to you, in, even in your own thinking and in your own heart, that this was a delegated power. You were not just some uh, free agent sorcerer or something like that. But you really did understand yourself to be working on behalf of the Lord Jesus. How would you respond? I'd imagine pretty good at first. Given that you have a real love for Christ, when you're walking into towns and villages and seeing this kind of power to heal, to cast out, to proclaim... I'd imagine it'd be pretty good at first that Jesus is so good. He is so wise. He is so great. He is so powerful. How wonderful it is to see Jesus' healing power. How joy-giving to see others turn and follow him. How awe-inspiring to rebuke evil and in Jesus' name see it cower. How clarifyingly pure it is to proclaim his kingdom even in judgment. But perhaps the longer this goes on, Perhaps the further the 72 are away from Jesus, perhaps more and more, if I were them, I might be tempted to just kind of like the building power, to enjoy the attention it brings not to Jesus, but to me, to become like Jonah, reveling in the prophetic work of rebuke, delighting in judgment, but then almost, man, kind of begrudging God when God brings about repentance, brings about his kindness. And so Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to us today, what should you rejoice in most? Should you rejoice in most the things that you see God doing in and through you? Should we as a church rejoice most in the things that God is accomplishing in and through us? Should we as individuals rejoice in most what God is accomplishing in and through us. No. Jesus says this is not about what you can do for him, but what he has done for you. That by following him, by trusting him in faith, your names are written in heaven. That you belong to him. How? How do you belong to him? Not by your zeal, not by your effort, not by your obedience, but by his grace alone poured out for you at the cross. You might say, well, the cross hasn't happened yet. So how are these people's names written in heaven? I've shared several times before, but it's been said that the Gospels are passion narratives with extended introductions. That is, the passion narrative, like the final day of Jesus, his suffering and his death on the cross. All of this, all of these many, many chapters leading up to that Easter week, all of these things that we are reading about and considering deeply here week by week in Luke's uh, introductory chapters are just but that. They are introduction. Why? Well, because his disciples keep getting it wrong. We keep getting it wrong. The disciples here, they need almost as ongoing and regular rebuke as the Pharisees do. And yet, what makes them different from the Pharisees? Their nearness to Jesus. Their love for him. Their trust that he will shepherd them and lead them. That they are just sheep. And that as dumb and stubborn sheep... They want to go the other way, but they want to follow him as well. 
Even as they grow in trusting him more and more, they will rejoice not in their effort, in their zeal, not in their accomplishments for Christ, but in all that Christ has accomplished for them. May it never be that I would boast, Paul says in Galatians 6, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May it be for us as a church. May it be for us as individuals. May we not boast in the things that we want to accomplish or even do accomplish, but may we boast only in the cross of Christ. Not in powerful acts, but that God has done the most powerful act to save sinners and to write their names into eternal life. And so how is power proclaimed? By and through his people. How is power secured? In you, not by your accomplishment, but Jesus's. And so if it is the power of Christ all the way down, in this chapter, it is nothing but the power of Christ all the way down, deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, lastly, how is that deep power of Jesus revealed? Revealed to the disciples, revealed to the world around them. Turning to the heavens, Jesus prays. In verse 21, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Now, Paul begins to work out in verse 21, or he begins to work out verse 21 of chapter 10 in the book of 1 Corinthians. Like the whole book, but especially in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, if you want to understand like a, a Bible commentary on Luke chapter 10, verse 21, just read 1 Corinthians 1. That God chose what was weakness and what was foolishness in the world to shame the strong, to shame the wise. That everything is upside down. That God, the creator of the universe and the singular deity of power, of glory, and authority, that singular deity comes to humanity in weakness, in humility, not to have them, his people, his subjects, his creation, serve him like we would expect, but that he might serve them. That he comes after millennia of their rejection of of him. Just think about that, that God comes to his people who have rejected him for millennia, and what would we expect him to do? To reject them, to condemn them. But he doesn't. He does not come to condemn the world, but that he might save the world through him, that he might give them grace, forgiveness, and love, that he might give life, not to those who are strong, not to those who are capable, not to those who are amazing, but to those who recognize their weakness, their incapability, their sin, and that through his death, he might be exalted and he might raise the people of his death into a people of his life. Just like we thought about in 1 Peter 2 earlier in our profession of faith, that he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that we might proclaim his excellencies. All of this is confusing both to the mind and the heart. This makes this upside-downness of weakness, it makes no sense. It doesn't seemingly work in any other area of life. It doesn't seemingly work in any other economy of the world. Power through weakness, gaining by losing, victory by suffering, life through death. It is confusing. It is impossible to see. 
And yet Jesus says that those who see will be the ones who trust him for his word. They trust him as little children. It is confusing and it is impossible and it is yet at the same time so simple. It is not only simple, it is the best news. Sometimes as we grow older, we begin to appreciate our abilities. We begin to appreciate the abilities of others. We do not think that it is wise to just trust. And yet, children do. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. If you believe that sentence, it will change your entire life. And it is simple, it is the best news, and yet it makes no sense to the world who cannot see. It is spiritual sight that is given by God. It is a gift of grace, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Following Christ or trusting in his upside-down gospel of grace does not come to a select few. It does not come to a select few who just have inherent spiritual wisdom, who just have better like decision-making processes to work through and say, mm, yes, cost-benefit analysis, I'll follow Jesus. It is the power of God all the way down. It is the power of God revealed in mercy. It is the power of God revealed in love, in compassion, in grace, and in kindness. Why? So that no one may boast. So that the people who see him and receive his power become a people not of their intellect, not of their own pride, but of the character of God, of his mercy, of his love, of his compassion, grace, and kindness, who rejoice at their names being written in heaven. In verse 23, turning to the disciples, he then said to them privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it what Moses and David, what Elijah and Solomon longed to see, look here, it's me, guys. It's like Joseph revealing himself to his brothers. They did not see, now they see. I am who you long for. What the prophets and the kings of old long for. The kingdom of God has come near. There will come a day Jesus will tell them that he will not be with them, that they will once again not see him, that they will audibly, with their ears because of their proximity to him, not hear him. And he will later tell them, though, that he will send the helper, that he will be with them even until the end of the age, that this, by the Spirit that they might walk in him, that they might hear him through his word, that they might see him not in presence, but in expectation and hope. That wherever they go, some being sent, some going to establish new churches, some of us being sent, some of us being sent to establish new churches, most staying where we are, living within the life of local churches, that whatever you do, whether eating or drinking, whether working or playing, in a church service here on Sunday or on your couch on Thursday night, whether with your kids or whether with your roommates, whether reading your Bible or scrolling your smartphone, that whatever you do, you may do it all to the glory of God. That your life belongs to him in his kingdom, that you live in the light, so walk in it.
And that when the world sees your good works, what? They may glorify your Father in heaven. Not glorify you, not make much of you, but that they might glorify God, that they too might turn, respond, and join us, having our names together written in heaven. And so how does God send his power in and to the world through his people? In ordinary faithfulness, in bold courage, in clear words of gospel sharing and in corresponding lives of gospel transformation. How does God secure power in his people? By his work, by his faithfulness, creating in them not pride but humility. And how does God reveal his power to those whom will be his people? It is an upside-down call to die that you might live, of self-denial that you might be affirmed in the glory of Jesus. The pages of redemptive history are beginning to turn over the disciples' very heads. And next week, we'll see one of the most upside-down stories of all time. And one of the most well-known stories of all time in the parable of the Good Samaritan in the second half of chapter 10, Jesus is going to continue to flip our expectations of what he has come to do for us and to flip our expectations of the lives that, his, that he expects of his people in following him and knowing him. But until then, let's pray that we would know the power of God, that we would proclaim the power of God, that we would rest in the power of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in the Son. We, your people who recognize and give our lives and our loyalty to King Jesus, that we know you, the Father. We pray perhaps for those amongst us who are here tonight who do not recognize Jesus. We pray that you would reveal to them. We pray that you would reveal true wisdom. That all of us, like children, might trust in the person of Jesus, might trust his words for us, might trust his urgent calls to follow him, might trust the life that he brings to us. God, we pray that we might be a people of courage and conviction, that we might, like the 72, go out and proclaim your excellencies. We pray that we would be a people of patience, of compassion, of living in and amongst those who might hear the gospel and respond. We pray that even us, we might respond more and more deeply each day as we walk by the Spirit. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.